Matthew chapter 6. And I just want to read for us the next section here, verses 19 to 24 of Matthew chapter 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Up to this point in our study through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus pretty much almost entirely has spoken of the spiritual character that we're to have as Christians. Uh, what is required by God to be his disciple. Um, and what kind of spiritual character they must have for that relationship to take place. It doesn't just happen automatically. But Jesus comes to a point in the Sermon on the Mount... And he wants us to understand that Christianity is not just a vertical relationship. It doesn't just affect the vertical. It also has a horizontal dimension to it. And sometimes we forget that because we're all material. (laughs) We're all spiritual creatures. But we live in a time, in a space, and physical universe populated by other people. And so Jesus says, it's important that your heart be right with me, and that's what you should be concerned with first and foremost. So he covers spiritual aspects here, spiritual characteristics up to this point. But he says, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. It's not just about the spiritual. There's going to be some things in the world that you're going to have to deal with. And so he addresses what should our lives be like on this level, the horizontal. So he leaves the vertical between us and God and he turns his attention to the horizontal, what it looks like here on earth. How should we regard the material things such as food, clothing, money? What should we think about what concerns the future? Which we view in terms of having possessions or lacking them. Uh, How should we relate to people who are different from us, who maybe don't act like us? Uh, do not act as that we that we belong to God and, and that we should be learning to trust Him. I mean, that's that's what we should be doing. Jesus addresses these matters in basically the nineteenth chapter of or the nineteenth verse of chapter six, all the way up until the twelfth verse of chapter seven. And so, up to this point, what He has said about our relationship with God. He wants us to understand that this must govern also how we deal with earthly matters. It's not just a a, a vertical thing. It it should affect our horizontal. And in these verses, he talks, as you, we just read a portion of them this morning, but I encourage you to read ahead each week because we're kind of going to be in the book of Matthew for a while, I think. So just keep on reading through the book of Matthew. And maybe I'll catch up to you one day. I don't know. But in these verses, he talks about wealth. He talks about material goods. He talks about worry. He talks about judging others. He talks about our constant need of prayer. And he ends the section with probably the best known saying in the entire Sermon on the the Mount, which is known as what? The Golden Rule. So I want to ask you this morning, where are your thoughts? How do we think about these things? Are our thoughts on the earth or our thoughts... On heaven, Is our mind on earthly things or is our mind on the Lord? Are we seeking the things of the earth or are we seeking the things of the heaven? These are questions that Jesus wants us to ask ourselves, just like he wanted them to ask themselves this, these questions. The main question is, where is our heart? Where is our heart? Is it focused 
on the earth, what goes on around us, or is it focused on heaven? See, the concern of Christ in this passage is money, like I said, possessions, material goods, all that. His concern is that we guard against the very fact of centering our lives around things like houses, furnishings, cars, lands, buildings, stocks, musical instruments, all these things. See, all those things that make up security and they make up wealth on this earth, he says, be careful. And the simple reason he tells us to be careful is because nothing on this earth is secure. Not one thing. There's not one thing that you have today that you couldn't lose by the end of the day. Nothing is lasting. The reason is simply because it's it's going to be gone away. Everything is aging. Just look around you. We're all aging. We're all going to look a little older next week. We're all going to look a little older two years from now. It's funny because we, we visited a, a doctor, a holistic doctor, and a real nice man and everything, but he's consumed with the idea of keeping youth. And he's always coming up with new things, and some of them work, you know, as far as keeping a youthful look and everything, and I think we should take care of our bodies and all that. But some people are so focused on that. And I was telling somebody the other day, and they, we were sitting in the coffee shop, and some name came up of some movie star. I don't, I don't know who it was. And, and uh, we were saying, are they still alive? Is she still alive? And we we're kind of going back and forth. I don't know, you know. Haven't seen her in anything in a long time or whatever. And I made this comment. I said, it's interesting that some of these movie store stars, they can maintain a certain image for only so long. And then all the Botox, all the facelifts, all the tummy tucks, whatever they're doing, it just kind of falls apart. And all of a sudden, you don't see them anymore. You don't see them in the... And then when you do see them, you're like, whoa, is that so-and-so? No way. Because we're used to them looking a certain way. And all of us, one day at a time, doesn't sound very encouraging, are getting older We're aging. We're getting new aches, new pains. Everything around us is decaying. Everything is wasting away. That's the second law of thermodynamics, that everything is on a continuum spiral downward. It's all corruptible. It's all temporary. And what Christ wants is for us to center our lives not around those temporary things, He's saying, don't do that. Please, don't do that. But I want you to center your lives around me and around heaven. That's what Christ is telling his his hearers here as he's talking to them. For everything about him and everything about heaven is life. It's not death. Everything about life or everything about heaven and about him is security. It's all permanent. It's all going to last forever. It's all eternal. And so to get us down this road, to stir our thinking towards this end, he says, I'm going to give you a lesson on wealth and on materialism. I'm going to give you a a couple tidbits here to help you understand where your heart should be. But the question that arises at all these verses according to verse 21, is basically, where is your heart? And it says, your heart is wherever your what? Your treasure is. What do I mean, where is your heart? What am I saying? What am I asking you when I say that? I'm not talking about some physiological location. Well, my heart's right here. What do you mean? You you put your, your hand over your heart. I know where my heart is. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about some person that you're hopelessly in love with and, you know, got all those ooey-gooey feelings. I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking in terms of the investment of your life. I'm talking of your motives. I'm talking about your attitudes. I'm talking about your thought patterns. That will tell us where your heart is. All you have to do is stop for a second and say, what do I concentrate on most? What preoccupies my life? 
And whatever pops into your head, that's where your heart is. And if that is not something that is eternal, is that, if that's not God in his kingdom, Jesus is saying, be careful. Be careful. What particular object do you spend most of your time thinking about, planning, or your energy on? When you wake up in the morning, if I were to ask you to keep a journal of your day, how is that time invested? Chances are, if you're like myself and other people, you spend most of your time thinking about something. Something. Maybe it's a house. Maybe it's a car. Maybe it's your wardrobe. Maybe it's a bank account. Maybe it's a savings account. Maybe it's retirement. Maybe it's a bond, stock, security, furniture, whatever. As creatures, we're all committed to these things. It's part of the curse of the society in which we live. Because some, some societies, beloved, are too poor to have a lot of the things that we have. And they don't miss them at all because they never had them. Remember when cell phones first came out? Those big honking brick-looking things? It looked like, like a satellite download thing or something, you know? Or when you had them in your car and you had to have this big antenna and all this... And it was like, wow, man, that guy's got a cell phone. Check out his car. That's what that antenna is for. for. He can actually talk to people in his car. You see him in the movies, you know, and special ops or, you know, some military thing. They whip out this phone. They throw the That's That's what cell phones started out as. Went yesterday to pick up the ladies at the San Jose airport. And on my way down there, looking at my cell phone, had the little visor thing hooked up, you know, so in case my wife called that it would do the hands-free deal. And I'm looking at my cell phone, I'm thinking, you know, this, it's incredible how much we depend on this little, this little piece of plastic. What would I do if I didn't have my cell phone? Because I was driving down 101 and I'm thinking, man, do I have my cell phone? And I remember, oh yeah, I have this here. I was like panicking, thinking, I don't have time to go back to the house and get my cell phone. How am I going to pick up my wife at the airport without my cell phone? She won't be able to call me and say, yeah, I got the baggage. I'm on the curb. I'll actually have to go there and maybe drive around a couple times and wait. How inconvenient is that? I mean, cell phones are a good thing. They've saved me many, many times. Here at the office, my wife calls. Hey, can you stop by Key Market, pick up some bread and milk? Oh, yeah, sure. Go down to later, a couple hours later, I'm in Key Market wandering the aisles. going, What am I here for? I know I'm here for something. Lord, help me remember, can. You have a cell phone out. Uh, yeah, I'm here at Key Market. Um, I know you told me to pick something up. What is it? Bread and milk. Oh, that's right. All right. What kind of bread? Okay, great. All right. Go over to the bread aisle, pick out the bread. <laughs> it's like, okay, there was something else, man. Get that cell phone out. Oh, milk. That's right. Now, maybe you don't have that problem. I do. Um, but it saves me. So there's nothing evil about a cell phone. Okay? But some people... Some societies don't have cell phones. And you know what? They don't miss them. They really don't miss them. John MacArthur, in one of his uh, commentaries, had this little analysis. And he he writes this. I don't know where he got it. It says, Mr. and Mrs. Thing are a very pleasant and successful couple. At least that's the verdict of most people who tend to measure success with a thingometer. And when the thingometer is put to work in the life of Mr. and Mrs. Thing, the end result is startling. There he is, sitting down on a luxurious and very expensive thing, almost hidden by a number of other things. Things to sit on, things to sit at, things to cook on, things to eat from, all shiny, all new, things, things, things. Things to clean with, things to wash with, things to clean and things to wash, (laughs) things to amuse, things to give pleasure, things to watch, things to play, things for the long, hot summers, things for the short, cold winters, things for the big thing in which they live, things for the garden, things for the lounge, things for the kitchen, things for the bedroom, things on four wheels 
Things on two wheels. Things to put on top of the four wheels. Things to pull behind the four wheels. Things to add to the interior of the thing of the four wheels. Things, things, things. And there in the middle are Mr. and Mrs. Thing, smiling, pleased with themselves, thinking of more things to add to their collection. Security in a castle of things. Well, Mr. Thing, I've got some bad news for you. What's that? You can't hear me? Oh, the things are in the way. But then that's the problem with things. Look at that thing standing outside your house. Whatever its value to the second-hand thing dealer, it means a lot to you. But then an error in judgment, a temporary loss of concentration, and that thing can be a mass of mangled metal being towed off to a junkyard. What about all those things in your house? Are they any more secure? Yes, time for bed. Put out the cat. But also, make sure you lock the door. And don't forget the windows. Watch out. There's a thief about. And that's the way life goes. Someday, when you die, they only put one thing in the box. You. As someone said, there's not... There's no pockets in shrouds. See, now that sounds kind of simple. It sounds kind of silly. But you know what? As a people, we are committed. As a person, I am committed to collecting things. That's just what happens. That's our bent. Well, Jesus wants us to beware of that. See, at no point does he say, oh, it's wrong to have these things. That's not his emphasis. There's nothing wrong with having things. I like what Chuck Swindoll says. He says, nothing wrong with having nice things is when the nice things have you. (laughs) That's the trouble. That's the problem. Well, where are we at in in our study of the Sermon of the Mount? See, because the thrust of the Sermon of the Mount is to kind of sweep aside the inadequate, insufficient standard which the Pharisees raised up for themselves because when they looked at God's standard, they realized they couldn't keep that, so they came up with their own standard for living in his kingdom. And they invented basically their own religious system of substandard man-made rules and that are basically ineffective, inadequate, and insufficient to do what God wants them to do. But the key in the Sermon of the Mount in which we find ourselves in the middle of is Matthew 5, verse 20. When he tells them, he's telling the Pharisees, the religious people of the day, he says, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, what he's saying is to be in my kingdom, you must live up to this standard. And then he goes on and he tells them what the standard is in contrast to what the Pharisees were doing. In Matthew 1, verses, or 5, verses 1 through 12, he talks about a right view of themselves. He says, to be in my kingdom, you must have a right view of yourselves. They were proud. They were egotistical. He says, no, you have to be broken. You have to mourn over your sin. You have to be humble. You have to be meek. You have to be hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Then you'll be part of my kingdom. He also, we went over the right view of the world. You have to live in the world. That's where we live. But you have to have a right relationship with it. And he talks about it in verses 13 to 16. They were part of the corruption, the darkness of the world. He says, no, you you have to be the salt. You have to be the light of the world to dispel darkness. That's what you're called to do. You also have to have the right view of the word of God. In verses 17 to 20, he talked about that. The Pharisees had developed their own system, their own word of God. And they interpreted it for their own use so that they could look religious, so they could look puffed up in the eyes of the people of the day. But he says, you must be committed to the word of God and not just one jot or tittle because none of it will pass away until all of it is fulfilled. You can't just pick and choose which part you want to follow. You also have to have a right view of moral issues. He covered in verses 21 to 48 of Matthew Five, they were concerned with what? The externals, as much of our society is concerned with. What you see, 
don't kill, don't commit adultery, so on. And so Jesus says, no, that's not good enough. It doesn't mean that you just, because you never went out and physically murdered somebody, what about what you thought in their heart? What about the hate you have in your heart for your brother? Just because you never slept with another man's wife, that doesn't mean that you haven't committed adultery in your heart. What have you done in your heart with that other man's wife? That's what really counts. And so moral issues were key to our understanding the Sermon on the Mount. And also a right view of the religious issues of the day. And we went over that in the last couple of weeks in verses 1 to 18 of Matthew 6. We talked about giving. We talked about uh, praying. We talked about fasting. They were doing it all wrong. They were doing it just to be seen by men. And Jesus was saying, no, when you do these things, do them in secret. And by the way, a lot of people came up or asked me last week, well, does that mean that I can't tell my spouse if I fast? Because he's, you know, well, I mean, it's, it's the motivation is behind it. I mean, and it doesn't mean also that after your, your fasting is over, whatever, that you, you can't, you know, if God spoke to your heart. And because I said, be careful when you're done with the fast because you're, you're really kind of pumped up spiritually and you can come across pretty, pretty uh, you know, spiritually elite to some people if you don't guard yourself. So sometimes it's better just to kind of let what God taught you soak in and then let it kind of seep out over a couple of weeks rather than just go dump on somebody. Nobody likes to be dumped on. But when he was talking about fasting and praying and giving, okay, he was saying, where's your heart? Where's your motivation behind it? Don't do it just to be seen by man. That's not important. You do it out of a, of a right heart, a right motivation. And then here we get to this part, and he talks about the right view of wealth and necessities. He says you have to have a right view of wealth and luxury in verses 19 to 24. And you have to have a right view of the necessities in verses 25 to 34. First of all, he deals with the wealth that we have. And, beloved, we live in a very, very, very wealthy country. And you may be sitting there, as I do sometimes, and you look at your checkbook and go, I don't feel too wealthy. Beloved, you're wealthy. You are. Compared to mass majority of the world we are very wealthy we're very blessed in this country despite all our shortcomings so he says you have to learn to deal with the wealth that we have and then you deal with the necessity the necessity to eat sleep to have a place to stay to have some clothing to wear see and in both cases what was happening was the pharisees had the totally wrong perspective So in every element of Christ's message, he sets himself and his word against what the Pharisees of the day were teaching. And really, we're no different today. One thing we learned yesterday in our training session, one of the segments was, you know, whatever the world views about anything, you can almost be assuredly it's 180 degrees opposite of what God says. Totally. And it's, it's just kind of an interesting thing. He went through a couple of these things. And, and I was sitting there going, well, that's true. Um, and and it's, it's, it's important to have the proper view of these things. Well, the Pharisees had a skewed view. They had a wrong view. And so what he's saying is your view of wealth and luxury must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees if you want to be part of my kingdom. That's why it's such an important thing. They had the wrong perspective. Jesus wants to give us the right perspective. They're laying up treasures for themselves here on earth. They're consumed with greed. They're consumed with covetousness. They're they're, they're looking at everything that they can get, get, get. That's not the standard. So our text this morning deals with how we view our luxuries and our wealth. And basically, in the coming weeks, we're going to be working through the little outline there, a contrast about two kinds of riches We're going to look a little bit about that today. And then a warning about two kinds of hearts or two kinds of visions. You can see that there. And also a choice. You have to, you got to choose. You're going to have to make a choice who you're going to serve. And that's what Jesus kind of lays out for us in his word. Well, today we live in a day and in an age that's just filled with, it's almost like a religion of having things, of greed. It's kind of like that's what, what people, that's what people pursue. You ask the normal person out there on the highways and byways what's important to them. Okay? 
a majority of things, I mean, you know, they'll say family and stuff, but not too far down in the line is, is their material things. Young couples, well, you know, we'd like to own a house. You know, that's very important to us. Well, that's great. But you can see if that's all you're going to pursue with the, the recent housing crisis and mortgage crisis, people pursued that without, without having a proper perspective of can they afford this? I just saw last night on the news where San Jose is giving away money, sometimes $150,000, $175,000 for people to put a down payment on a condo just so they can get their foot in the door. That's really nice. But you know what? I'm sure that there's other expenses than just paying the mortgage when you own your own house. Some of you will attest to that. You have insurance. you got everything. I mean, there's a lot of extra things that go on. My, my daughter, they just bought their, their house here recently. And, and, you know, first house, they're all excited and everything. And, I mean, you know, when I was there, I mean, we, you know, we just kept on, you know, it was like, uh, well, they didn't have Home Depot. They had Lowe's there. But, I mean, that was like, it was, we were at Lowe's or Walmart, you know, continuously. Just because, you know, needed things and stuff. And, and it goes on and on and on. It never stops. And there's nothing wrong with that. We should take care of our houses and those things. There's nothing wrong with that. But we have to be careful because the world system pushes that or pushes us in that direction. And so he shows us here the hypocrisy of the Pharisees' religion in verses 1 to 18. And it shows that wherever you have hypocritical religion, you will have greed. That's what he's showing us. So our, our, our Lord deals with their view of wealth, their view of money. But wherever you have, and mark my words, wherever you have a false teacher, wherever you have a heretic, wherever you have somebody standing up and teaching something that you don't find in God's word, you can go right to their wallet. Inevitably, that's what they're after. They're after your money. That's why the Bible says it's very important that we don't discharge the ministry for the sake of filthy lucre. It says that in 1 Peter 5.2. Now, does that mean that pastors can't get paid and things like that? Obviously not. It also says that, you know, the, the, the workers, you know, worthy of the wage. But I guarantee you, beloved, if the elders came to me tomorrow and said, you know what, uh, giving's down, the economy, everything, you know, we can't pay you anymore. My attitude would not be, and mark my words, oh, well, well I'm going to go find another church. If you're not going to pay me, I can't, you know, how do you expect me to live? No. I've done it before. Maybe do it again. Go get a job. A real job. You know, where you actually punch a clock. You got a report and you did that. I did framing, picture framing for 10, 10, 12 years while I was working in ministry the whole time because the church couldn't pay me. Whenever you find somebody that's at a church or in ministry for the check, you know, I hate it. We call people up sometimes and, hey, you know, I was just curious if so-and-so would be willing to come and speak to our church and, well, how many, how, how many do you have in your church? Well, we're not a real big church, maybe 60, 80. But, you know, if we had a conference, maybe, well, I, I don't know, you know. Um, and they send you this packet of information, and, you know, speaking fee, $10,000. It's like, what? You've got to be kidding me. And this, these people speak all over the place. I mean, you're looking at a year down the road having some of these people speak. And at $10,000 a pop, do the math. Okay, now you tell me they're not concerned about money? I can't question their motivation. I'm not doing that. I'm just saying, obviously, they have some concern. Then you have people on the other side of the fence. I remember when we first called David Hawking, asked him to come up here and teach, and the only weekend he had open was Labor Day weekend, and it was about 120 degrees outside. And we met right here in this place when we had the pews and all that stuff. And uh, we uh, had maybe, I don't know, 50 or 60 people. And I was embarrassed. I'm thinking, oh, gosh, love offering, you know, forget that. What's... And he says, hey, don't worry about it. I told you I'd come in a love offering. God will provide. See, that, that's somebody who's really concerned about ministering to God's people. 
Or the folks yesterday that came and did the, the, the conference thing. You know, we didn't pay a dime other than what we did in, in, in volunteer work and we paid for the uh, refreshments. There was no fee for that. But obviously it cost them money to fly or drive from Southern California up here. Not once did they say, oh, by the way, you know, you're going to help us out with this or help us out with that. Matter of fact, they reassured me that, hey, we got more than enough funding that we do this as a, a ministry to the churches. So we don't want any. See, I appreciate that. Well, those kind of two things, when you see a false teacher, inevitably you can go back to their wallet. See, the Bible characterizes hypocritical religion in two ways. It's the greed of money and it's immoral in its lusts. Those two things follow the course of false religions and false leaders. And all you have to do is look at the history of Christianity and say, oh, yeah, you remember this guy? Oh, yeah, you remember this guy? Did he say what lined up with the Bible? Well, no, but he was, you know, he was real, you know, good evangelist or whatever. Okay, well, then you find out he, he's fallen into immorality. And you know what? He's, the person's back in ministry for the same reason, generating money. It's amazing. And yet the world, the church, just kind of accepts these people. And, you know, well, we don't want to judge. And you know, the, the Word of God says that sometimes we are called to judge. Not motivations, but you can, you can judge people's actions. And we have to be aware of that. So where there's hypocrisy, there's always greed for money. If you think back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, here you have Eli as the high priest of Israel. He's a key religious leader. He had two sons named Hophni and Phinehas. And these guys were men of great responsibility. They were the sons of the high priest, the priestly line. And the responsibility before God and before the people was great. But you know what? His two sons were were phonies. They were absolute hypocrites. They were totally immoral. They were lustful. They, they, They were lewd. They were living in almost a pornographic kind of life. And on the steps of the place where God was worshipped, the temple itself... They were evil. They were vile men. And God eventually had struck them dead. That's how bad they were. And they were spiritual phonies. And that's illustrated in 1 Samuel chapter 2. According to Leviticus chapter 7, a portion of the offering that is brought to the Lord goes to the priest. The breast and the right thigh, it says. But Hophni and Phinehas said, when the offerings come in, we will examine it and take what we want. Don't listen to what God says. And we'll leave the residue for the Lord. They were in it to get what they could get out of it. And when people brought their offering to the Lord, they demanded to see the offering first, and then they selected what was best for their own indulgence. And whatever was left, they kind of threw on the altar for the Lord. They were, they were greedy people. 1 Samuel 2.17 says this, Wherefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men abhorred the offering, the offering of the Lord. They were tampering with the things that belonged to God. God doesn't mess around when it comes to those things. You look in the New Testament. The Pharisees were doing the exact same thing. They were using their religious position to fulfill their own pockets, to fulfill their own pockets, to fulfill their own greed, their own lust. And twice, in in John 2 and in John 21, Jesus had to go in and what? Cleanse the temple with a whip. Their system was one that was filled with greed. They were using their religious positions to get rich. And beloved, there's people today that are doing the exact same thing. Just turn on the TV. And just, just a word on this for a second. I mean, because I don't know if any of you have watched this thing in Lakeland, Florida lately. This Todd I mean, Bentley is his name, I think. Um, kind of a biker pastor. He's got tattoos and bald head. and Nothing wrong with a bald head, but, uh, you know, he, there's nothing wrong with having tattoos either, I guess. God doesn't care about that. But, uh, you know, he claims to be a faith healer, and, and this revival thing has been going on. It's on God TV, I think. But, I mean, it's getting so whacked out. I mean, you know, I watched it a couple of weeks ago, and you know, yesterday I was watching. I actually recorded a portion of it because I couldn't believe what I was seeing. 
I mean, this one guy come up and say, oh, my stomach hurts. And this guy's standing in front of all these people, you know. He goes, it hurts. And he's, he's like this. This is how he is with his microphone. I'm drunk in the spirit. I'm drunk in the spirit. It just, he looks like he's possessed is what he looks like. And he puts his head down and he rams the guy. Another guy, he went like this. Oh, God just told me to do that. I mean, it's, it's going crazy. I mean, you laugh. I, I'm serious. People are flocking to this thing. This guy's making money, hands over fist. I guarantee it. Because he is definitely a false teacher. God is not into this, you know, this show that he's putting on. First thing he asks people on his little platform there is, what are you feeling? That's the first thing. What are you, what are you feeling? Man, you ask me the bad part of the day, what I'm feeling, you may not like the answer. What's the difference what we're feeling? All the emphasis is on that. You've got to feel the fire. And he's guaranteeing people all these healings. And I don't know what your view on that is, but I'm saying, you know what? I, I, I think that you know, God is done with a lot of that. God can heal today, but he doesn't need characters like that in which to do it. He's a charlatan. He's one of these false teachers. They had them in the New Testament. We have them today. Wherever there's religious hypocrisy, wherever there's false teaching, inevitably there's a problem with greed. And to the Pharisees, in their day and in their age and in some evangelical camps today even, being rich is a sign of holiness. That's what people believe. Just in Jesus' day, they believed they were rich because they were so righteous that God is blessing them. And when the Lord said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, they, it blew their mind. They were like, what? If we're rich, God is blessing us. And so they gathered all their goods. They gathered all their money to show how spiritual they were. That's why they wore long flowing robes with gold and all glitter and all this other stuff on it. Because they wanted to come across as being rich, as being wealthy. Well, where did they come up with this idea? Where did they come up with this false religion of greed? I mean, they just didn't wake up one day and say, hey, I think we'll try this. Well, we read this morning out of Deuteronomy chapter 28. And this may have been where the Jews of the day came up with some of this thinking. The Lord delivered Israel from Egypt and he brought them to the edge of Canaan, the promised land of flowing with milk and honey. And that was the land that God was going to give them. And he laid down some wonderful conditions for their entrance into the land, which we read this morning. On the basis of these conditions being met, he laid down some wonderful promises. One of the promises was in Deuteronomy 28, verses 1. It shall come to pass, if you hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord your God to observe all the commands which I command you this day, that the Lord your God will set thee high above all the nations of the world, and all the blessings shall come from thee and overtake thee, and you shall, if you hearken unto the voice of the Lord. See, the basic command regards obedience. If you do what I say, I will bless you. How would the blessings come? And he tells us in the cities and the fruit and the increase of this and the increase of that. That's what God would do. But you notice here that all the blessings were material. They were physical. They were tangible. They were visible. They were earthly blessings that God promised them. And over, and we didn't read this, but verses 15 to 19, it says, If you shall come to pass and you will not hearken unto the Lord, the word of the Lord, to observe all the commands and his statutes which I command you this day, that all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And then it says this, Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading trough. Cursed shall be the fruit of your body, the fruit of the land, the increase of the cows and the flocks of the sheep. Cursed you'll be when you come in and when you go out. In other words, material blessings in their mind were a sign of their obedience. Material poverty was a sign of their disobedience. That's how God laid it out before them. And so when they looked at that, they misinterpreted that and said, well, we have to get wealth so that we will look (laughs) like we're obedient, like we're spiritual. And it became this parade of spirituality. Who's more spiritual? Well, Joe's got more in his account than I do. He must be. 
And there's people today that believe this. You know, you say, hey, uh, brother, you know, pray, can you pray for my finances? You know, I'm just kind of struggling in some areas. What's wrong with your life? Is there a hidden sin maybe in your life? Because God promises us prosperity, and they go on their health and wealth and all this stuff. That's not in the Word of God. That's a wrong worship. And the Pharisees had begun to build their own phony system off of what God's Word said, just like they did before. And so they began to believe the more you have of something, well, that shows God's blessing in your life. And that's a total misinterpretation of Deuteronomy 28 because that's not what the text is even saying in the slightest. Once again, the issue is the heart. When we gather material wealth, it shouldn't be our goal in order to parade it so that we look righteous before other people. Look at what God has done for me. Look at how holy I am. Look at what I have. Look at the car I drive. Look at the house I live in. That's not the motivation. Or they may have misapplied it because in Proverbs 10.22 it says, The blessings of the Lord, it makes rich. See, they desperately wanted money and they became perverted and greedy and corrupt. Well, the Bible has a lot to say about this in Solomon. In, in Ecclesiastes 1-2, Solomon was very, very rich, and yet he says, vanity of vanities, it's all vanity. It's not worth it. And there's even modern-day people who are very wealthy that they'll tell you, and some of them have even come to the Lord and said, you know what, I chased, I climbed this ladder for 50 years of my life only to realize that the ladder's leaning against the wrong wall. And I have more money than I know what to do with, but you know what, it's not bringing me happiness. In Exodus 20, 17, God said, Thou shalt not covet. In Proverbs 23, 4, it says, Labor not to be rich. Proverbs 28, 20 says, He that makes haste to be rich shall not be innocent. See, in other words, the Bible warns against being greedy, against being covetous, against being hastiness in this area and trying to just... Pursue riches. But in spite of all these warnings, Luke 16, 14 says the Pharisees were covetous. They were still going after the things. They wanted money, they wanted material wealth, and they wanted possessions, and they wanted them now. So they were willing to do anything. And they were earthly because their religion was false. It was fake. It was hypocrisy. And this is what the Lord is using as a backdrop to speak on these issues in Matthew 6. He's using the backdrop of the greed of the Pharisees. So you need to understand kind of that background before we even get into the text, because if we just jumped into the text, it'd be like, well, why are they having a problem like this? He's saying that we must have a proper view of money, we must have a proper view of wealth, and we must have a proper view of our possessions. We must handle our possessions, our money, our wealth, and our luxury like we do anything else. 1 Corinthians 10.31, you probably know this verse well, whether you therefore eat, whether you drink, or whatever you do, whatever it is, Paul says, do all for what? The glory of God. doesn't matter what you're doing. If you're not doing it for the glory of God, stop doing it. <laughs> See, but our problem is, is that we do so much of it that we, we just indulge ourselves. In order to know how we handle our luxuries, we're given three alternatives in the text here. We're given two kinds of treasure, two kinds of riches, two kinds of hearts, and two kinds of masters. In each of these three alternatives, Jesus is pointing out the same principle, but he's coming from a different angle. First, we have to make a choice of whether we're going to lay up treasure here on earth or are we going to lay up treasure in heaven. That's the base starting point. Secondly, we have to make a, a, a choice of whether we're going to exist in the light or we're going to exist in darkness where's our heart going to be in all this and finally we have to make a choice of masters will it be God or will it be money will it be this world 
because he says very clearly, the master cannot be both. You can't say, oh, well, I got it all balanced out and I got everything. No. It's not even an option. He says it's going to be this or this. Door one or door two. There's no door three. And the three choices the Lord gives us, really, you could sum them up in one. How should we handle our wealth? I'm not saying these choices are easy. They're not. They're difficult. You have to make them every day, throughout the day, in different venues with different people. John Stott said this, Worldly ambition has a strong fascination for us. The spell of materialism is hard to break. And beloved, it is. It's very hard. We're not really going to get into this first one today, but I just want to touch on the aspect of these two treasures He says there, lay up not for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. You have an option to choose two treasuries, one's on the earth or one's in the heaven. You can't have both. That's very clear. Jesus says, put it in heaven, don't put it in earth. What do you want to do with your wealth? What he's saying is don't invest it here. Invest it there. See, but the problem is, and the Bible addresses this in 1 Timothy 6.10, the Apostle Paul said to Timothy, his disciple, he says, for what? The love of money is the root of all evil. That's the key. The love of money. It doesn't say money is the root of all evil. You understand that? It's the love of money. You could have a billion, billion, zillion dollars. And if you don't love money, you might be okay, depending on what you're doing with it. But Paul points out very clearly, the love of money is the root of all evil. You know what's interesting? You could have a zillion dollars and not love your money, and that would be okay. And you might be sitting here this morning and saying, well, pfft, you know, I barely got a hundred bucks in the bank. But you know what? You can still love money. Your, your, your account could be at zero. And the love of that money could drive you to do things that you would never think of doing. See, it's the love of money that corrupts. It's not having the money. It's the love of the money. Jesus clearly pointed out where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You think in in, in Joshua 7, Achan, instead of inheriting the promised land, he died with his entire family because he decided to take what God forbid to do and and kind of do whatever he wanted. And when he saw a beautiful garment and, and some coins, he stashed them in the ground, in his tent. And the Lord confronted him through Joshua who said, you had better confess your sin because you're going to die. And he did. And his entire family died. What was motivating him? Money. The love of money. Ecclesiastes 1-2, we already said that. Vanity, vanity. It's all empty. It's all useless. It's all meaningless. It's all void. He, He was the richest man in the world, this Solomon guy. You look in the New Testament, Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. And Nias and Sapphira, they decided to keep some of the money that they promised to the Lord. God, if you help to sell this house, we'll, we'll give this portion to you. And then the house was sold and they changed the rules. It cost them their life. Think of Judas. He betrayed the Lord for, you know, hardly anything. And he hung himself in the end. Second Timothy 4.10 talks about Demas says, he has forsaken me because he loved the system. What's the system? The system of money. Well, next week we're going to look at what Jesus 
tells us about the contrast between these two kinds of riches. Because there are earthly riches. And depending on what you're doing with them, it may be okay. But there are also heavenly riches. And we're going to look at the choice that Jesus sets before us next week. I encourage you to read ahead and uh, see what God has for us. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, I pray that we would not be like the Pharisees, that we would not take your word and kind of just diminish it to a bunch of do's and don'ts and then feel spiritual about ourselves when we just do the do's and and, uh, stay away from the don'ts and, and build ourselves up and parade ourselves before others. Lord, uh, we're all blessed by you. We're all (laughs) wealthy in some sense. Even in our material possessions. And God, we have to recognize that it comes from your hand. And Lord, you've entrusted these goods to us, these things to us. And some of them are for our pleasure. Some of them are for ministry. Some of them are to be used to help other people. But Lord, in the end, they're all to be used for your glory. And Father, help us not to hold on to them too tightly. Lord, help us to realize that at any, any moment you could take things away from us if you choose. Our house could burn down even as we speak sitting here right now. You think of some of these people that have gone through these fires and they've literally lost everything that they had. Just an ash heap all the memories, all the photos, all the heirlooms, all the antiques they collected, all the whatever it may be, clothes, the wardrobe. They got out with the shirts on their backs, some of these people. God, I I would not wish that on anybody. But there's kind of a part of my heart that says how freeing that would be. How freeing that would be to wake up one day and have absolutely nothing. God, I pray that you don't take us there physically, Lord, that you can take us there spiritually, that in our heart we would not be holding on to anything other than you, that our heart's desire would be to to see you glorified and exalted in our lives. And, Father, that we would use the things that you've entrusted to us as gifts from you for your glory. Father, show us what's in our hearts today and in the coming weeks. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be transformed, that our hearts would be refocused like a laser beam on you, that we could close out the clutter from the chatter from all the world in the direction that constantly pulls us in. Father, that we would feel the tug of your spirit pulling us close to your chest, to your heart and that we would see you in a whole new, a fresh way. Father, we pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.